in our sermon series that has been on a pause for the last couple of weeks as we had the community service a couple of weeks back, Thanksgiving before that, and then last Sunday with the missions weekend. So we're continuing on with the sermon series, Every Wind of Doctrine. And today, part three, the sermon title is in the form of a question. Can our faith force God to act? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who guides us into your word to understand it. And we pray, Lord, that as we dive into your word today, we pray that you would help us discern truth from error, help us to hold to the truth, for it is what will set us free. Help us come to a correct understanding of the relationship between faith and our prayers and you acting on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that in all of this, we will give you the glory, the honor, and the credit of being sovereign over all things, including our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are going to continue looking into the prosperity gospel, also known as the Word of Faith movement or health and wealth teaching. Now I know it's been a few weeks, but I hope that the last message will still have some uh, recollection for you as we continue to build off of that today. Now, you will undoubtedly have heard of the famous boxer Evander Holyfield. He, of course, famously fought Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson infamously bit off part of his ear and, you know, the rest of that story. But aside from that infamous event, Evander Holyfield was extremely successful. In fact, he was the five-time undisputed heavyweight champion of the world with career earnings over $560 million dollars which doesn't include endorsements over and above that. Evander Holyfield is also a professing Christian who attended the Reverend Creflo Dollar's church. Now, Reverend Dollar, you may recall, is one of the more outspoken preachers of what's known as the prosperity gospel. One of its central teachings is that God wants you to be rich and healthy, so long as you exercise enough faith, that is. They also have a particularly strong emphasis on the specific type of faith that requires giving large amounts of money to your preacher. Now, the basic idea, this is maybe overly simplifying it, but the basic idea at the heart of this teaching is you put in $10 in the offering plate and somehow God will give you $100 back and just multiply it from there, so on and so forth. Well, Mr. Holyfield evidently took this type of teaching to heart because Following one of his championship-winning bouts, he reportedly gave Reverend Dollar $3.5 million. Then, in the year 2000, his then-wife told a divorce court that Holyfield had given Reverend Dollar at least another $7 million during the course of their marriage. A later report stated that Holyfield had donated over $20 million to Reverend Dollar. So... With that kind of extravagant giving, we should expect that the financial blessings for Evander Holyfield would just keep flowing in, right? Because who could be more generous than that? Well, let's judge for yourself. Evander Holyfield has since lost his entire fortune. His 54,000 square foot, 109 room mansion was also foreclosed on along with his extensive sports memorabilia collection that was forced to be auctioned off by the IRS. 
Not only had he lost it all, but he was actually tens of millions of dollars in debt and hounded by the IRS for unpaid taxes, and he just barely avoided ending up in prison for it. But now, in these hardships, you would think that his pastor might have been more than happy to help out his good, generous friend. Well, not exactly. When Evander was unable to pay child support payments to his ex-wife, or unable, unwilling, we're not sure, her attorneys requested a deposition from Creflo Dollar in order to determine the exact amount of donations made to him by Evander during the course of their marriage. They were doing this to help determine the divorce settlement. But Creflo Dollar refused to comply with the court order, and the judge actually found the minister in contempt of court. Now, what I want to point out from all of this rather extreme example is this. If Reverend Dollar's teachings were true, the core of his teaching, then Evander Holyfield should be the poster child for it. He should, she, he should have continued to be just raking in the money and success with how generous he was in his giving. You know, it, it was so generous, in fact, that it helped put his pastor in a 17,000-square-foot mansion of his own. But now, the prosperity teaching puts the sole emphasis on the individual simply having enough faith. And the emphasis is on speaking enough words of faith, having enough acts of faith, particularly in giving. And one of the things that goes along with this type of exercise of faith is you name verbally, you name and claim what you want, and God will give it to you no matter what, whatever you ask for. Now, I'm not making this up either. Creflo Dollar said in one of his sermons, and I quote, When we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying for, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. Now, if that raises a red flag for you, it should. Because I ask, really? God has no choice but to make my prayers come to pass? Is that really what the Bible is teaching? You know, that sounds a lot more like I've become the master and God has become my personal genie in a bottle who must automatically grant me my three wishes. Or more like an ATM where I put in my debit card of faith and so long as I've got enough faith on the balance, God just spits out whatever it is that I want. But is that how faith in God really works? Well, they argue that it does, that the power of my faith can essentially force God to give me what I want. And they apply that to both financial blessings as well as to physical healing. So today we're going to focus in on the physical healing aspect. Last time we looked at the, the financial aspect, today we're going to focus in on faith healing and look at one of the key passages on healing in scripture in James chapter 5. And you can turn there with me to James chapter 5. As you're, as you're turning there, I have to say two things. Number one, I unequivocally believe in a God who has, can, and still does heal physically today. Period. God can, he has, and he still does heal physically today. Second, I don't want anyone to leave here today with a diminished belief in God's power or willingness to heal. 
In fact, I want you to leave here today, if possible, with a greater belief in God's power and willingness to heal, and that, in fact, we are invited to ask him for healing. Now, having said those two things, I must add that I can't stress enough that healing must always be according to God's terms and according to God's will, not our own. Now, James 5. I hope you've turned there already. And let's look at verse 14. James 4, beginning in verse 14, and I'll read through to verse 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you from this passage is the obvious. Here, the church is given a direct invitation and instruction to seek physical healing from the Lord by inviting the church elders, which in the context of our church, in our case would be myself as the pastor, or the care committee, or those in church leadership. So we are instructed that we can, and in fact should, invite them to come and pray for us. It's also one of the main reasons why we have things like the prayer chain. We have the prayer chain because we believe that God hears our prayers when we intercede for one another. We also believe that when God hears our prayers in his sovereign wisdom, he acts in his wisdom according to our prayers. Now, I hope that you already know this part, what I'm about to say, but let me just remind you anyways. If you are sick, don't be shy about asking for prayer. Don't be shy. Don't be too proud or feel like your issues don't matter. Like, oh, I'm bothering Danny or, or whatever. Don't, don't feel that way. You are instructed, invited to ask for prayer. Ask me for prayer. As a pastor, that's one of my privileges is to be able to go and pray for people, to ask God for healing. I also want you to notice in this passage that the emphasis and encouragement is on the person who is sick to call the elders for prayer. It's not the emphasis on the elders to go find out whoever's sick. It's the emphasis on the sick person to call the elders. Well, why is this? It's a very practical reason. The church elders or the pastor don't automatically know when someone is sick. You know, even Batman needs a bat signal to go up in Gotham City to let him know when there's a villain on the loose, right? Well, there's no bat signal that goes up from your house or from the hospital to let us know when you need prayer. So it's a very practical reason. Those who are sick call the elders for prayer. And I can tell you, it's one of my greatest privileges as a pastor is to come and to pray for those who are sick. Not to mention one of my greatest joys is to see how God answers those prayers in a wide variety of ways, and we can praise him for that. So now on to the very challenging line within this passage that is the contentious point that prosperity teachers will emphasize and point to. It's in verse 15. You probably noticed it already. Verse 15 says this, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now this word will seems to be an unconditional promise. This is not unlike other statements in Scripture, such as Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 11, verse 24. He said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. 
Yet we all know at the same time, and most of us have had firsthand experience, that not everyone we prayed for is physically healed. Sometimes people are. Sometimes people aren't. We also know that faithful Christians, old or even young, can still die of diseases, even though they've been the recipients of many prayers, sometimes they still die. And so how are we then to interpret these verses? Well, this is where we must apply a very important hermeneutical principle. And all of you guys just glazed over when I said that. Some of you know what I mean by this. A hermeneutical principle is a fancy way of saying interpreting and applying scripture. So in Bible college, I took hermeneutics. That's what it means, interpreting and applying scripture. And the very important hermeneutical principle, you can write it down, you can sound smart when you say it to your friends later this week. This very important hermeneutical principle is this. We must interpret scripture by scripture, not by man's ideas. So when we run into challenging verses, we need to look at it in the light of other scriptures to to come up with our interpretation, not just look at one challenging verse, apply my man-made idea to it, and go and run off with it. We must interpret Scripture in the light of other Scripture to have a cohesive message from the entirety of Scripture. God gave us all the books for a reason. No single verse, chapter, or even book of the Bible stands entirely alone How we understand each piece must fit consistently within the framework of God's word and message as a whole. So now I can tell you from my studies that one of the things that prosperity teachers are very good at is cherry-picking verses that support their ideas and then mostly skip over the ones that don't. And so what happens is, is we take a passage like, or even a single verse that says, the prayer of faith will make someone whole, And then they build a whole framework out of that to the exclusion of other scripture passages that might temper that or even contradict it. Now, one particularly glaring omission is when a verse is used, but a key line right in the middle of the verse is ignored or skipped over completely. And let me point it out for you. It's in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. And you can turn there if you like. I'll read it for you. 1 John 5, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Now, this sounds like, you know, a great verse for name it and claim it theology. Just believe it, ask it, and it's yours. But... Is that exactly what this verse is saying? What phrase within this verse would contradict that sort of a thinking? Which is the key phrase that is ignored and skipped over? Well, it's right in the middle. It says, ask anything according to his will. Ask anything according to his will. It's not just ask anything according to my will and it's mine guaranteed. No, it's ask anything according to his will. Do you see the difference? We must always humbly submit our requests underneath and according to God's sovereign will. And so when we pray and we ask for healing, it too must be according to God's will. 
And we must now apply this principle to the James 5 and Mark 11 passages to remain clear and consistent on the entirety of God's word. When we pray, when we believe, we ask in faith, it is according to God's will that he will answer and he will grant because we have asked in agreement with his will. Because while we are invited by God to freely ask for healing, we must also accept that God is free according to his will to say no. Or sometimes to say, just wait. Or I've got something else in mind here. Because what happens is, if we pray for something, if we pray for healing, and the answer is no, we must then exercise faith to trust that God is not how, somehow punishing me, or somehow because I'm lacking faith, but to have the faith to trust that in his sovereign wisdom, he has something greater in store than immediate physical healing. And this is where I'll refer you now to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. It was our scripture reading this morning that Henry read for us from verses 7 to 10. Now, to give you a little bit of context here, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's explaining to them something very important that I'm now going to begin reading in verse 7. We're jumping in the middle of a thought where he's been talking about this great revelation that God had given to him. And then following that, he shares this, verse 7. Because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we don't know for certain what Paul's thorn in the flesh is was. Uh, We're quite certain, scholars are quite certain, it was some sort of a physical ailment. One that he three times asked God, pleaded with him, in fact, to heal and take away from him. It could have possibly been related to Galatians 4.13, where Paul wrote to the church there, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. So it could have been related to that in some way. But the, the core point here that Paul is making that I want to stress for you is that he had some sort of physical ailment, some sort of suffering that, that he just wanted to be free of, and he pleads with God three times to remove it from him, and three times the answer is no. No. What does Paul do with that? How does he respond to that? Does Paul go back to the drawing board and say, okay, my faith is too weak. I need to conjure up more faith and keep asking. Is that what Paul does? No, he doesn't. Let's look at what Paul does. Nothing happens. Paul, we have to ask the question, was he somehow lacking in faith to believe for his own healing when he in fact had been used to heal others? Well, if we look at prosperity teaching, that would have to be the argument. But it's not according to the Lord. Listen to what the Lord said to Paul after three times being told no. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
I want you to see something here. God's provision for Paul was far greater than immediate healing. His provision was grace. Grace. Grace to endure. Grace to trust in the suffering. Grace even to boast in this weakness because it meant that Christ's power would rest upon him in an even greater measure because of it. Now, I know for some, hearing all of this now, it may seem like I'm nitpicking a little bit over a minor difference in doctrine. One where we can simply agree to disagree and then just carry on. But I want to stress to you that this is not just a small D doctrine. I believe this is a capital D doctrine because it fundamentally alters how we view God and our relationship with him. And there are two very serious implications of the prosperity gospel teaching that I'd like to highlight for you. The first one, if you haven't got this already, I'm going to emphasize it once more, is this. The sovereignty of God is undermined. The sovereignty of God is undermined. You see, God, in his sovereign wisdom, knows when something will be for our ultimate good or not. God knows this. I don't. Now, I might think something is really a great idea for me, and I can ask with all faith and sincerity that God please give this to me. But God, his wisdom is infinite, and he might know that what I'm asking for is actually the worst thing for me. But if he is forced because of the measure of my faith to say yes to that prayer, even knowing that it could be for my ultimate ill and and evil and a terrible outcome, well, his sovereignty is now undermined. Let me give you an example. Let's say that God in his sovereign wisdom knows that it's not best for Danny Greening to win the lottery. Okay? He just knows this. Yet I, Danny Greening, have exercised and mustered up enough faith to name and claim winning the lottery. Therefore, God has no choice but to say yes to my prayer, even though he knows that it will lead to my ruin. And just as a side note, there's a reason that there's a TV show called The Lottery Ruined My Life. It's a real phenomenon. People who win the lottery, like the big lotteries, it wrecks them. It wrecks their families. It's a terrible thing. That's why I never buy a lottery ticket because I'm afraid I might win, right? It looks like, oh, this would be great. I want to win the lottery. You watch that show one time, you will not want to win the lottery. Trust me. But here we see an example. If God has no choice, as Creflo Dollar said, then suddenly it's, it's about me forcing God to do something. His sovereignty has been undermined. And the implication of this is, I am actually putting myself in a position of higher authority than God. I'm in effect saying to him that I know what's best for me. And as a result, God's sovereign wisdom over our life is undermined. I want to highlight for you a, a passage from Psalm 147. In verses 4 and 5, it says this about the Lord. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Now, I don't know about you, but my understanding has more than just a few limits. More than just a few. God's has none. No limits whatsoever. And my mind can't even begin to understand how many trillions upon trillions of stars exist in our universe. And yet this passage tells us that God has not only determined their number, but he's named each of them. He's given each of them a name. So when I put that in context, who am I to demand 
that God do anything? Who am I to demand and to, and to say that I know better than you? And so I hope you are beginning to see how problematic this type of teaching really is. The second serious implication is this. If you pray for healing and it does not happen, then it's essentially your fault. The blame is yours. Because you see, if God has no choice but to answer yes to your prayer of faith, but then he doesn't answer, well then the only conclusion that remains is that either you or the people who prayed for you simply did not have enough faith. So therefore, not being healed is your fault. And so therefore, that means it's up to you to fix it by believing harder, by praying harder. And for the word of faith teachers, even considering the possibility that God may have said no or wait to your prayer is seen as a sign of doubt and a lack of faith. I even heard one say that verbally declaring the words in your prayer, if it is your will or according to your will, is demonstrating a lack of faith because you're conceding the fact that God could say no if it's not his will. And so just don't use those words. Just be emphatic. Just say what you want. Declare what you want. And that's it. Don't give any voice to doubt. Well, to respond to that, I would like to point you towards the Lord Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So here we see Jesus himself in his humanity. He knows the cross is coming. And and in his humanity, not wanting to go through that suffering, Jesus asked to not have to suffer on the cross. And yet even in that request, he begins the request with saying, If you are willing. And he concludes the request with, Yet not my will but yours be done. A double uh, couching of saying, Father, I know your will is best and I'm asking this, but it has to be according to your will or I don't want it either. And in in praying this way, Jesus is demonstrating trust in his Father's sovereign will through his suffering. Now, one man who believed the word of faith doctrine and taught it to others as well was a man named Ellie Acock Olaire. He was a preacher in Kenya. And he taught that if you exercise the faith to name it and claim it, then you had the power to essentially speak into existence and obtain from God whatever your heart desired. He taught that sickness has no place in the Christian's life and that it was never God's will for believers to suffer. And he also taught that if they did suffer, it was due to some unconfessed sin or a lack of faith. In an extensive article in the Gospel Coalition, he shared in his own words, I believed God was good, and this meant nothing uncomfortable ever came from him. I had absolute authority to create my own world through positive thinking and faith-based confessions. I believed God's will included health and wealth, which I could call into existence by faith. Anything less should be repudiated. In 2003, my wife and I lost our first child, Whitney. I believed the spirit of death had prevailed over me, Turmoil ensued for me and my equally word-of-faith-filled wife. How could God let the devil overrun us like this? During this time of inner turmoil, my wife became pregnant again. And on the sunny afternoon, we took home our newborn son, Robin. We were jubilant in the triumph of a healthy baby. 
But the next 24 hours became the darkest of our lives. When Robin developed complications, we went into frenzied spiritual warfare along with a wide net of friends who interceded to God on our behalf. This time we would not be caught off guard. Our faith assured us the devil would not take Robin. We called on those who gave us prophetic assurances. Only life was permitted. Death was not our portion. But the night grew more intense. Well-meaning church people quietly suggested our calamity could be due to unconfessed sin in our lives, or perhaps to a curse, or as I firmly believe, to my lack of faith. My grieving wife and I spent months repenting of possible hidden sins. At the time, my wife believed she had a prophetic gift. Her visions that night included Robin playing happily in the mud and a grown-up Robin addressing thousands as an international preacher. In tears, she shared these messages in the presence of the prayer warriors gathered in our small house. After midnight, when Robin's condition grew worse, a new word explained the word of faith error by indicating his healing had now been placed in the hands of doctors. So I left home, clutching my baby, seeking the hospital. At 3 a.m., the doctor looked up into my determined eyes to declare the words I could not bear to hear. Robin is dead. As my world collapsed, chaotic feelings assailed me. At one point, I screamed at God in disappointment that he'd failed me yet again. I had exercised tremendous faith. How could he let this happen? Next came a series of miscarriages. And without answers, we were dismayed with God, whose ways no longer made sense to us. How could we reconcile these bad things with a good God? Ali goes on to share how several years later he was asked to translate a sermon into Swahili on behalf of an Australian missionary. He says the topic, justification by faith alone through the imputed righteousness of Christ, Christ sounded absolutely ridiculous, not to mention boring. On stage for an awkward hour, I forced myself to translate word after word ones that I believed were unbiblical and heretical. But the Sovereign Lord worked in my heart as I translated those words, calling forth forth reason through an inner witness to the truths that my own mouth were proclaiming. In the following months, my desire for health and wealth lost its sway. I desired Jesus. Enthralled by Christ, who bids his own to take up his cross daily and follow me, I now realize that the suffering of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed. My new birth gave me new eyes to view scripture. Careful study cleared the poison of word of faith teaching from my life. I now saw suffering as God's gift to train our eyes in the infinite treasure we have in Christ. And so to conclude that story, my friends, I will tell you this. The sick don't need the added burden of shame and guilt for somehow lacking enough faith if they are not healed. They instead need the message that God's grace to endure is enough, as it was for Paul. They need the message to know that they can exercise the faith to trust him, that even though we don't understand why the healing has not yet come, why he has not yet provided it, the faith to trust that his reasons are good and that he has something greater than just temporary healing in store. And so, my friends, today I want you to hear loud and clear, yes, God heals. 
And yes, we can and should prayerfully ask for him and intercede for others with expectation. But we must always remember that God's will being achieved in and through my life, including in my suffering, is of greater eternal importance than my temporary wealth or health. For remember, we exist for God and for his glory, not our own. And often, like Paul, God's glory is achieved in greater measure through granting us grace in our suffering than it is even by miraculous healing. Because remember, even if God chooses to heal miraculously, instantaneously, it's still for his glory. It's still about him. You will likely have heard of Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was a prolific songwriter, and if you haven't heard of her, you have sung her words. Because during her lifetime, Fanny Crosby wrote more than 8,000 hymns and songs, many of which are in our hymnals today. In fact, she wrote so many hymns that she would have to submit many of them to different hymn companies or under a different pen name because people didn't want to have too many hymns from just one author in their books. And so among those hymns, Fanny wrote ones that you will know quite well, To God Be the Glory, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross, I Am Thine, O Lord, Blessed Assurance. The list goes on and on. But here's the amazing thing about Fanny Crosby. She was blind. She was only six years old, and she had a minor eye inflammation, and the doctor who treated her was careless. This was many years ago. They didn't have the, the modern technology we have today And so as a result of this poor treatment, she was totally and permanently blinded for life. And yes, many prayed for her healing, but it was not answered. And her life went on in darkness. And someone once asked her later in her life if she was ever resentful or bitter towards that doctor whose poor treatment had been the the very thing that had ended up blinding her for life. And listen to her reply. She said, if I could meet him now... I would say to him, thank you, thank you, and thank you over and over again for making me blind. She believed that her blindness was a gift from God to help her see the music that she wrote for the Lord in her mind and in her heart. She believed that God had allowed this to happen so that she would write hymns that would praise him and change many lives as a result. And she said that her greatest joy was going to be that when she made it to heaven, the very first face she would ever see would be the face of Jesus. And with new eyes, she would look upon him for all of eternity. And so today, my friends, may we have the same faith to trust in God's sovereign mercy that if his will is to heal us now, it's for his glory and we will praise him. And if it is his will to say, no, I have something greater in store, may we have the faith to trust him in what we are enduring, and we will praise him in it for his grace to endure, just as Paul did. For it is truly enough. It is sufficient for me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace. It truly is enough. As Paul declared, he would even boast in this grace to endure in the face of trial and suffering. For it is through that 
grace, through the power of Christ, it is unveiled in our lives. And Father, we pray that as we boast in this grace, as we look to you, our great God, our provider, our healer, we know that our ultimate healing is already assured. That we know one day when we stand before you in glory, all of the sickness and illness of this life will be gone. And as Fanny Crosby said, we will see you face to face with new eyes. And it will be like we are seeing for the very first time. We know that this healing is guaranteed through Christ. And we thank you for it. We thank you as well, Lord, that your mercy and in your compassion, you can provide physical healing for those who suffer even today, and you invite us to ask you for it in faith, with anticipation of how you will respond. Help us to do so always in accordance with your will, trusting that if the answer is no or just wait, that we have the grace to accept that and to keep trusting you that you are good that our world doesn't crumble because the answer is no, but that instead there is something greater in store that you are working out that we just need to trust and wait for because you will provide it. And so we pray, Lord, that this truth would be grounded in each one of our lives, that we will leave here today with greater sense of your sovereignty over our lives and your mercy that you will heal us, whether it's today or in eternity. We thank you for this. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.